And now, it's time for Lawyers for Jesus Radio, lighting our path through law. A show about faith in the law and in the marketplace. Featuring the partners from the law firm Mauk and Baker. Located in downtown Chicago, Mauk and Baker is nationally known for defending freedom and serving the people of faith. And now, Lawyers for Jesus. Welcome to Lawyers for Jesus Radio. I'm John Mauk, a partner and attorney at the law firm of Mauk and Baker in Chicago. We're Christian attorneys that focus on serving the body of Messiah with its legal needs. To learn more about us, go to maukbaker.com, that's M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R.com, or call at 312-726-1243. Do you have questions about Islam? Do you want to know more about religious liberty from the perspective of another religion? Well, today we're speaking with Azam Nizamuddin, president of the Muslim Bar Association of Illinois, as well as general counsel for American Trust Corporation, chief compliance officer of Allied Asset Advisors, and an adjunct professor of theology at Loyola University, where he teaches Introduction to Islam, so he's familiar with interfaith discussions, and in the past has been interviewed by NPR, the Wall Street Journal, and the Chicago Tribune. Azam, welcome back to our show. Thank you, John. Great to be back with you. <laughs> in our last show, which is available by podcast for those uh, who may have m- missed it, we were talking about uh, persecutions of Christians uh, today uh, throughout the Islamic world, where uh, it seems that Muslims are clamoring for religious liberty and the end of discrimination that they experience in America, Europe, and other places but uh, Christians and Jews have certainly been pushed out of most Muslim uh, countries. Give us some historical perspective on that and what you see is going on now. Yeah, so um, last time I think we kind of just ended talking about this uh, subject, which is that both doctrinally and historically, Christians and Jews and other minorities enjoy relatively peace and stability within Muslim lands. And that is because Islam considers Christians and Jews in particular, and later on during the Mughal Empire, Hindus too, to be protected peoples. So as long as they paid a tribute, they were fine, and uh, people did not have mass exoduses from, for example, in Muslim lands, whether it was Indonesia, South Asia, or the Middle East. However, this begins to change a little bit after the rise of European colonialism in Muslim lands, and particularly after World War I and II, where as a result of different changes in society, modernity, nationalism in particular, you do begin to see much more um, contentious aspects of the role of religion in society, whether religion should play a a role in state government, for example, like in Iran or Sudan, uh, but also as a result of war. So, for example... um, Christians in Iraq, the country of Iraq, joined tremendous freedom and uh, uh, they were climbed the ladders of both political and social society. So, for example, the guy who worked under Saddam Hussein, uh, Aziz, he was a Christian, Arab. But after uh, the invasion of Iraq and the destruction of that society, all of a sudden you find you know, not only Muslims but also Christians being persecuted by various groups that came rise to power as a result of the lack of infrastructure and the police state collapsing and so forth. So I think as a result of that, people see that and they think, oh, this must be due to religion. But I would argue, and many scholars have argued, it's not a result of religion per se, but it's as a result 
of the changes, and in, in the case of Iraq and like even Syria, the destruction of societies by invasion and things like that. So I think it's a much more nuanced, really, reality than purely, uh, you know, persecution based on religion or not. Well, we read a lot, uh, and as lawyers, we're familiar with the concept of uh, Sharia. 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 Excuse yes. me. I'm familiar enough, but not, not pronouncing it correctly. Sharia. Uh, and every every religious group has its laws. Right. Uh, uh, Catholics have uh, uh, Catholic law, and uh, there's law in the Bible. Um, but the concern is that, at least from an American point of view, Sharia is an imposition of a religious law over a secular law, which is anathema to most Americans, but how do you as a Muslim feel? If Muslims got in the majority, would you vote for Sharia law to uh, become uh, enforceable in America? Well, first of all, I think what, uh, that's a very good question, but with respect to the U.S., Americans, uh, Muslim, American Muslims are about 1% of the population. Number two, I think just like Jews who um, incorporate halakha, Jewish law, into their daily lives, just as uh, even Catholics incorporate some aspects of canon law uh, to uh, solidify their relationship with the church and parishes, similarly, Muslims desire to incorporate uh, ethical uh, teachings and educational teachings of Sharia into their lives. And I don't think there's anything unusual about that. It's part of American society and well, culture. Well, no, but I mean in terms of imposing – once you get into a majority and say this is how society needs to be structured because it, it, uh, Catholics did that and uh, sometimes there's history of Protestants doing that in, right. in Geneva and, and, and so forth. But right. uh, the world has evolved, I hope, for the better in allowing individuals to decide whether they want to follow that that law or, or, or groups or families or communities but the imposition of a national Sharia law uh, seems to be an obstacle. I mean, is is See, that an agenda? Yes. Is that a hidden agenda? Or no, I don't. I don't. I don't think that there's any. First of all, I don't think there's any agenda at all for the imposition of anything by the Muslim community. I think Muslims simply want to live like like any other minority, which is to fulfill uh, their responsibilities as good, good citizens and abide by law like anybody else. But we can get more into that in the next segment. You're listening to Lawyers for Jesus Radio. I'm John Mauk, partner of the law firm of Mauk & Baker. If you missed part of this episode or want to hear previous Lawyers for Jesus interviews, you can visit MaukBaker.com. You can subscribe also to our Religious Liberty newsletter and follow us on Facebook and Twitter for legal updates. Today we've been speaking with Azam Nizamuddin, an attorney and president of the Muslim Bar Association of Illinois. Uh, we were talking, uh, Azam, about Sharia and whether that was a hidden agenda. And one of the problems with interfaith dialogue that I've encountered is this Muslim doctrine called takira. And as I understand it, that is the duty of a Muslim to represent Islam and forgiveness if they lie about, if they uh, lie because they want to advance Islam. And as I understand it, there are two exceptions uh, to lying. 
Muslims should speak the truth, but it's okay to lie about marital infidelity and in defense of Islam. Is that is that correct? I've never what, heard of that, John. What is, takir, yeah. <laughs> what is takira then? Uh, I think you're talking about what's called takia. Takia. Uh, which is not a major doctrine in Islamic teachings. It's not part of any doctrine that I ever was taught. And in fact, I never even heard about it until I think when I was uh, in grad school and there were people who were sort of castigating and attacking Islam. Um, and there's no uh, exceptions, generally speaking, to telling the truth. Truth is something that is a fundamental trait of being Muslim in the world and a fundamental aspect of Islam. I think what you're referring to is that particularly in the Shia community historically, because they faced persecution by the Sunni majority in different areas and lands, certain scholars within Shiism had uh, came to a particular opinion in certain contexts, very limited here and there. Uh, and I'm talking about isolated incidences, not a major sort of movement, but an isolated incidence where they advocate that in order to protect you and your family from persecution, that it's okay to say that you know, you're part of the Sunni tradition. So critics of Islam, particularly those who even want to sort of misrepresent the faith or attack it and to make it seem like it's a threat, have used some of those historical unique incidences to say, oh, all Muslims believe that. And that's, of course, not true. Okay. Uh, that's a witness for the defense. <laughs> uh, but it is an objective of Christians to bring Muslims to faith in Jesus. And you're saying it's not quite that uh, direct within Islam about bringing Americans, whether Christians or, or, or secularists, uh, to Islam. There's not the same evangelistic uh, impulse? Yeah. So, again, as I said to you, I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Historically and doctrinally, that's not the case. In fact, many parts in the Quran, God says that, I, you know, I have created you into different people so you can practice your own traditions, and I've given you your own ways to practice and follow your own path. Otherwise, I would have created you all as one. There's many parts that the, uh, the Quran mentions that. Historically, that was also the case. Uh, Muslims did not go out to proselytize and convert anybody. In fact, why? Because they were in the dominant political and social ac economic position, and they wanted to uh, kind of control that, and they didn't want other people coming into the faith. However, post-colonial uh, experience is very different. And particularly, you begin to see Muslims in South Asia and even parts of the Middle East where, uh, as part of the sort of colonial administration, you have missionaries coming into South Asia and the Middle East. And seeing the missionary work created a response by Muslim activists now to. You're talking about Christian missionary work. Right. Right. As a result of Christian missionary work in places like Egypt, for example, and India and Pakistan, you can see uh, the rise of debates occurring between Muslims, certain intellectuals, and Christian preachers in 19th century India. As a result of that, certain Muslim activists in the 20th century have developed this idea of what's called da'wah, which is the notion of spreading the faith and to preach. It's not conversion, but it's simply promoting your faith. Coming up, we will talk further with Azam about Islam and the concepts of spreading the faith, the contrast between evangelical missionaries and Christian missionaries with Muslim missionaries. I'm John Mauck, and this is Lawyers for Jesus Radio.
In the wide, confusing world of law and lawyers, it's tough to find someone you can trust that shares your Christian values for legal advice and representation. You can trust Mauk and Baker, a Christian law firm based in Chicago that serves churches, ministries, businesses, and individuals with their legal matters. They seek to represent clients like you with integrity and care by using biblical principles as the foundation of their work. Additionally, their monthly newsletter highlights what's current in the religious liberty arena, keeping you informed on your right to worship, whether that's on the street, in public school, or within the walls of your church. Subscribe to their newsletter at maukbaker.com slash newsletter. That's M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R dot com slash newsletter. If you have a legal need or question and want the perspective of a local Christian attorney, contact Mauk and Baker at 312-726-1243. Call and mention Lawyers for Jesus for a free consultation. That's 312-726-1243. Welcome back to Lawyers for Jesus Radio. I'm John Mauk, an attorney at Mauk & Baker, a law firm based in Chicago, which serves churches, ministries, businesses, and individuals in their legal needs. If you missed the first part of this show and want to listen online, or you want to hear the prior interview we had with Azam Nizamuddin, an attorney and president of the Muslim Bar Association, you can go to maukbaker.com and hear a podcast. Uh, Azam, before the break, we were talking about Christian missionaries, and I was about to ask about Muslim missionaries, because we we know there is a Muslim missionary movement, and, uh, you know, as civil libertarians, we welcome missionaries, people talking about what is our faith, what do we believe, what do Muslims believe, who is Jesus, you know, to ask these questions and then uh, and then sort it out. So, What's the history and current status of uh, missionary outreach in the Muslim perspective? Sure. So both doctrinally and historically, uh, Muslim missions was not a common or a very popular feature of Islam uh, in Muslim communities. Uh, while there were within segments of the Shia community what are called da'is, which are basically people who are trying to promote a particular minority position of Shiism within the Shia community, you didn't find that in Sunni Islam. So if you look at the great scholars uh, like Al-Ghazali, for example, or Rumi, um, or even uh, others, you don't find them writing books on the subject. That's how we know it wasn't a major issue. Um, as well as the uh, empires, whether it was the Mughals or Ottomans, you don't see them, for example, uh, sending missions abroad uh, and things like that. Um, the other group that sort of seemed to have uh, promoted some form of uh, spreading the faith. I wouldn't call them missionaries. Are the Sufis who would travel from land to land to basically give teachings of Islam to both primarily Muslim communities, but also some minority communities such as Hindus and so forth. And you see this in Indonesia in particular. But what you're describing, sort of Muslim missions, really begins to be a phenomenon in the 20th century. And again, I think this is related to the rise of colonialism in Muslim lands, where colonial administrators, the Brits, the French, and the Dutch, as vis-a-vis -vis part of their administration, would have missionaries also coming into Muslim lands and preaching the gospel. In reaction to that, you begin to see certain Muslims then also try to uh, spread their faith. And in particularly, you begin to see post-World War II the rise of Muslim organizations who believe that in order to counter the influence of the West, that they need to engage in what's called da'wah. 
which is sort of, you know, promoting Islam. And you find some of that also in the United States, uh, certain organizations that do what's called da'wah. Well, I would think it would be, it would be obvious that if what you believe is true, you would want to share that with other people. <clears throat> and that's, that's where followers of Jesus are, are coming from, not, not just because you believe it's true, but it's yeah. changed your life and he's given you energy and love and uh, a different outlook on who you right. are and, and, and you love other people and hope that they could come to that faith too. So yeah. you don't want to impose it. There's been a bad history of imposition, I think, within both faiths of, of using force right. to, to coerce or using economic power or suasion, but uh, just general suasion, uh, convincing people, telling them, I mean, wh why isn't that natural? I mean, I I would expect Muslims to do that, and really, people of every faith. Well, yes and no. In other words, if you look at the Jewish community, uh, you don't find aspects of missionary work and proselytization, despite the fact that the Jewish community's global community has different interpretations. And I would argue Islam has that aspect as well. I mean, you have certain Muslim communities have zero interest in promoting their faith. But on the other hand, you do find some who, like you rightly said, are so excited about their faith that they're very eager to spread their faith. But you, you find this in particular with converts. Like, the people who promote this the most are people who convert to Islam. And after converting to Islam after a year or two, they, <laughs> they're the most eager people to also okay, spread it and sure, share that, it. That happens with, uh, with Muslims that convert to Christianity, too. Right. They, they often are the most the most focal. Exactly. I wanted to add a comment about, about Judaism because I've, I've, I've studied that. The Hebrew scriptures are, are full of evangelism, and the, the idea is to reach the Gentiles. And it, it's there, but uh, post— Jesus, when you had the Christian church becoming politicized, uh, there was repression of Jewish evangelism and 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 penalties. So, I think I think uh, the Jewish impulse to share the faith was let's let's just be protective, and unless people came to us and said, "How do I become a Jew?" Yeah, uh, we're we're gonna keep to ourselves because otherwise we're gonna get killed or yeah or 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 pushed out. And I I think that essentially became a uh, a Jewish doctrine, uh, but it wasn't because they didn't want to, want to share. Uh, today, uh, you're listening to Lawyers for Jesus Radio. I'm John Malk of Malk and Baker, and we're talking with Azam Nizamuddin about his Islamic faith and uh, where things are going with Christianity. And, and here in the USA, uh, how Muslims are being treated. Uh, I'm interested in this because I've represented uh, Muslim congregations in zoning disputes, and there seems to be a lot of feeling that you can't build a mosque without getting a lot of heat or persecution or just uh, turned down. Uh, what are you seeing? Yeah, so um, uh, I'm seeing pretty much the same thing, uh, particularly in the last 20 to 25 years. Uh, you begin to find... Uh, Muslim communities, especially in smaller communities like Tennessee, for example, or maybe in um, the Deep South or even in places like uh, uh, New Jersey, uh, resistance to 
Muslims building a mosque or expanding their center. In particular, what I notice is that there's great opposition to having a minaret or a dome. And I think a lot of this is not simply inherent in the local communities because many communities have churches and synagogues, but I think it's because of fear and misinformation that spread. So the idea, for example, if a Muslim, um, a mosque or Islamic center has a dome or minaret that somehow signifies, you know, a takeover of the community and things like that. And I think a lot of this misinformation is not just pure ignorance, but a lot of it is actually promulgated by organizations and people who believe it's in their political interest to do so. And unfortunately, the average American who doesn't know and hasn't really studied or knows the Muslims uh, sometimes follow those views. So they're being ex exploited and and uh, seduced into Islamophobia? Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what Islamophobia is. In fact, there was a research done by uh, the, uh, a think tank in Washington, D.C., uh, um, which demonstrated, uh, issued a report about 80 plus pages, uh, which showed that about 50, maybe about today, $60 million have been spent by different organizations and foundations to promote people, individuals and organizations that promote this kind of fear. It's called Fear Inc. 2.0. Fear Inc. 2.0. If you go on the web, uh, Google and do a search, you'll find so, that report. So you can see the report about... Uh People who are trying to incite Islamophobia. Exactly. These are individuals, um, you know, with different kinds of um, political motivations. Some are perhaps from a religious perspective. Others are a political perspective. I, I, you know, I think that's probably. I hate to say this, pretty American, because we see much more than fifty or sixty million dollars being spent uh, in terms of anti-Christianity. I mean, there's so much hatred of Christianity in certain segments of America. Um, I'm not speaking from about Islam, but uh, just the, the anti-religion because uh, you're claiming to have a faith that uh, gives the answers, that you have the truth, uh, or, or for other reasons, because you believe in traditional marriage. Uh, has that created uh, uh, problems for Islam, its, its belief in traditional marriage? You know, no one ha has really uh, focused on that aspect, and oddly enough. Uh, I think a lot of it has been the idea that uh, some, what you sort of alluded to earlier, the idea of Sharia law or Sharia coming and taking over America, violence, um, you know, all kinds of sort of uh, misinformation. And I think that has led to this idea of, uh, you know, resistance at mosques being built and also a general Islamophobia. For example, also during political season, whenever every four years is a presidential race, um, during particular last two terms, um, the GOP had candidates who publicly would say things like, "I will, when I become president, I will not have a Muslim as part of my cabinet. And that received tremendous applause from the audience. Imagine if someone said that about a Christian or a Jew or any other like religious tradition, what the reaction would be. But somehow it's acceptable to say that by candidates uh, against a Muslim. And uh, I feel uh, terrible about that because uh, my, my kids read that and they think, do I have a role in society, in American society? Yeah, and, and there's a constitutional protection, uh, thank God, that there should be no religious test uh, for office. And so, Well, uh, so long as the Supreme Court enforces it, yes, but I don't know. <laughs> I, I have my well, doubts. The, the, the Democratic Senate seems trying to uh, get around that by uh, asking a lot of questions of, of Catholics in particular. Uh, uh, and saying that 
Knights of being in part of the Knights of Columbus should disqualify a person from uh, uh, hold, holding office, and of course that's anti anti Catholic. Uh, th thank you so much for being with us today, uh, and we hope this encourages others of different faiths to open their hearts to discussion. Uh, you can go to malkbaker.com and listen to our podcasts. And you can send us questions by emails if we have another opportunity. Perhaps we can talk to Azam or other um, Muslim leaders about Islam or Sharia. If you have a legal need or question and want the perspective of a local Christian attorney, contact us at Malkin Baker. Reach us at 312-726-1243. Visit our website at malkbaker.com to subscribe to our Religious Liberty newsletter. Thanks for listening. I'm John Malk, and this is Lawyers for Jesus Radio. God bless you. You're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody.